This morning's reading is taken from Jeremiah 29, verse 1, then continuation from verse 4 to 7. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent um, from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Um, verse 4 to 7. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For, it, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. So, it was in the year 586 BC that the, um, the disaster happened for the Jews back in the day, living in Judea and in Jerusalem. The unthinkable happened. The Babylonians completely overpowered them, set the temple on fire, and they took the whole of the middle and upper class of the country into exile in Babylon. So they basically left the whole country in ruins. And they made sure by taking the middle and the upper class away into exile that there was no... There's not going to be a chance of an organized rebellion against their rule or something. And they brought a whole bunch of other people in. And it's, uh, this was their, their proven tactic to make sure that they would stay in power and they would be strong. And they would take the exiles to Babylon and um, really try to brainwash them and uh, use them to strengthen their own systems of uh, dominion worldwide. This is the way that they would... Um, organized their empire. And so this significant group of exiles uh, was there in Babylon and they were wondering what to do. They didn't know how long are we going to be here? Are we going to be here forever? Or are we going to be, is God coming for our salvation? Like, yes, we've learned our lesson and in a few years we're back or something like that. And to this group of exiles, the prophet Jeremiah sends a letter with the word of God for them, with prophetic instructions for them. And in that letter, he says to them, the exile will take 70 years. And in 70 years, there will be something like a second exodus, like the exodus out of Egypt towards the land. There will be like a second exodus. You will turn to the land and be able to build it up again. But until that time, you remain in exile. This means that everyone who received the letter and read the letter knew we are never going to make it back. Because in 70 years... You know, everyone that was able to read knew, in 70 years from now, I'm not going to be around anymore. So we're, we're going to be staying here. There's a promise that we'll be able to return. There's a promise that we'll be able to build it back up. But we're never going to make it there. Instead of telling them, rebel against the rule of the Babylonians in some way, or distance yourself from them, like just... Uh, like uh, get as far away as possible, try to kind of live your own life and build your own thing, live there with a temporary mindset, wait out your time. Jeremiah actually gives them a very challenging instruction. 
He says, this is how you're going to live as exiles. This is, what, this is what God is commanding you, how to live as exiles in Babylon. He says, flourish there. Be a blessing to the city where I have sent you into exile. He tells them there's a purpose for them. There's not just a purpose for them when this is over. There's a purpose for them right now in the time of exile. And one young man took this to heart. And his name was Daniel. Daniel was one of the brightest in Jerusalem. And one of the first that actually was taken into exile because he was part of the upper class. And in the time, he and his three friends um, got to the court of King Nebuchadnezzar and they wanted to um, use his brains basically for, for their rule, for their uh, systems of dominion. And so they tried to brainwash him <laughs> with their literature and really make him part of their culture. Really, they gave him a new name, sort of, sort of new identity and said, we, we want you to, be, to become a Babylonian like us uh, and we want to use you for our systems. And what is interesting in the life of Daniel is that we see him working for the good of the city, helping to uh, see the city flourish, but at the same time he is resisting the temptations and the pressures of the city, not bowing down to its idol, idols and remaining faithful to Yahweh. And we see that he actually becomes one of the king's main advisors. In the time that he's there, uh, the, the stories covered in Daniel 1 to 6. He's actually serving three different kings. These were wild times. Uh, so he's serving three different, um, different kings, but he is, he's one of their main trustees, one of their main advice. He's got a very, very high position. He's a trusted person in that kingdom. And he's serving them through the turbulent times, but at the same time, he's refusing to bow down to their idols, literally, and he's not afraid to speak up He's not afraid to speak out uh, and also prophesy the end of the, of the empire. And so today, <laughs> you and I, we can relate to the life of Daniel quite strongly. Because more and more, I think we begin to realize that as Christians, especially as Christians here in postmodern, post-Christian Western Europe... We are living in exile as well. You and I, we are living like exiles, the people of God, not living in the city of God, but living in the city of this world. We're citizens of heaven, but we're exiled in today's world. And in the terminology of the book of Revelation, it would be we're citizens of the new Jerusalem, but we're living in Babylon. We're exiled. We know that the exile will end, one day, because Jesus is coming back to make everything new. That's the day when the exile will end. But until that time, and we might not see that day, until that time we're going to live here as exiles. And actually, Jesus sends us out in this way as well. This is how Jesus prays to the Father shortly before he's arrested. John 17. He, he speaks about, he, he, he's talking to the Father about the disciples. He says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
So Jesus talks about the disciples as actually not belonging here on this earth. They are not of the world. They don't belong here. In a way, they're, they're exiled here. They belong to, to heaven. They belong to me. They belong to us. They're not of the world. They're different. They're sanctified. They're set apart by God. Yet, Jesus sends his disciples into the world with a mission. And so the words that Jeremiah spoke to the exiles in Babylon and how we see that translated in the stories from the life of Daniel, they become relevant for us again today. They are giving us a framework for understanding how we are to live in this world as exiles, as citizens of heaven living in Babylon, being in the world while not of the world. And in this message series that we've given that name, In the World, Not of the World, we're going to look at four different postures or attitudes or roles that will help us to fulfill that that purpose that Jesus has for us in today's world. And so today we're going to look at our role as exiles. Then next week we're looking at our role as priests, the week after as prophets, and the week after that as witnesses. But to help us understand our role today as as exiles, I'm going to turn to uh, a book that's written by a very broadly respected uh, pastor who uh, died a couple months, maybe a year ago. Uh, And it's the theologian and pastor um, Tim Keller. And he wrote this book. It's a really thick book. I haven't read it all yet. (laughs) Uh, The audio book takes like up to 40 hours or so, <laughs> and, uh, and it's quite dense. It's a, it's a book, Center Church, and in that book, Tim Keller attempts to answer the question how Christians should relate to the cities that they live in. What should be their posture towards the city that they live in? Um, it's very elaborate. It's discussing all kinds of um, kind of models to, to kind of understand that, but also very practical, and it's discussing all kinds of examples, attitudes. It's 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 quite dense. It's uh, it's it's also quite profound, and it's uh, helped um, many many people from many different streams of the church to understand um, what are we called to in this world today. What does that look like? What is, what is the position of the church, especially in a in an urban context? And uh, I guess Groningen, it depends where you come from, what you see as a city, but in the Netherlands, we see Groningen as a city. So this is big enough, 200,000 people, could be a village in back where you come from. Uh, but <laughs> like, in countries like China, it wouldn't be, even be on the map. <laughs> like, ah, oh yeah, whatever. It's, but for us, it's a city, yeah? We're, we're, I think we're in the top 10, 10 in the Netherlands, so we're, we're a city, yeah? For our standards, we're a city. We're an urban context. Um, and so... <laughs> In the, in the concluding chapter of, kind of part four of this book, it's called City Vision, he gives uh, three attitudes towards uh, the city. Uh, and, and I'm going to use it as a framework for the rest of this uh, message. But um, just, I'm, I'm kind of transitioning from like this world to the city, um, which you could see uh, the city as a sort of intensified, um, uh, place where sort of the world is because it's it's a highly populated area and so everything that is good and uh, broken about the world um, 
comes out sort of stronger in, in the city. Like the beauty of, of, of arts and creativity and helping and, and you know, working for justice that comes together in the city. But at the same time, that, that brokenness and the, the despair and the, uh, the injustice also um, is stronger in the city than, than out in the country. And so... We're going to be talking about the city, but really you can also understand it as the world. But it makes it a little bit more personal. You know, when I talk in a message about, you know, we're in the world, not of the world, uh, you can see yeah, it's, it's quite abstract, you know, the whole world, like, sure thing. But when we talk about the city, like we're, we're in the city, but we're not of the city, it makes it a little bit more personal because... We're in the city right now. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're part of the city. And this is, this is our city. This is, we, we belong in this city. Uh, even if you're here just for a couple of months or a couple of years. But we're part of this city. And we're called to this city. We're called to be a church community in this city. So it makes it a little bit more personal. Even practical, if you will. So we'll look at the three um, attitudes that... Um, are going to be helpful. First, Christians should develop appreciative attitudes toward the city. If you want to reach the city, you've got to genuinely love the city. I see, as it says in John 3:16, that in this way God loved the world that He gave His only Son. He like He, he sent Jesus into the world because He loved the world and he, and, he, and he did it in this way that Jesus gave his life for us it's, it's the love of the father that, that drove him to, 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 to send Jesus and that he's now sending us it doesn't mean that we have to love everything about the city but we have to genuinely want the best for the city love it in that way the thing is, God loves the city. And we are living here as ambassadors of his kingdom. It's interesting that the first big city in the, in the world, in, 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 the, in the Bible, was built in rebellion against God. It's the city of, of Babel that would later become Babylon. And it's built in rebellion against God as a, sister, as a symbol of people saying, like, we don't want... We don't want God. We'll build our own empire. We'll build our own city with our own tower that will reach to the heavens. Like we'll make it ourselves. We'll make this. Uh, we'll we'll see. Uh, we'll flourish ourselves, and we don't need God. We're not. We're not under God. We're over God. We're self-sufficient. And I think any city will still have that same attitude of self-sufficiency. Of uh, like we're enough. Uh, and we don't need God. We're, we're going to build a kingdom without the king, in a sense. What cities often do is that they cut people loose from faith. And they tie them to their own idols. Because once we're in the city and we get caught up in the city, we'll feel you know, we're, we're self-sufficient. We're, we're good. The city will take care of us. But even though the first big city was built in rebellion against God... He did not abandon the city. In fact, he chose to live in a city. And let the Israelites build the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And so God was dwelling in a city. 
In fact, the Bible portrays the perfect new world that uh, he will establish when Jesus returns to make all things new. Also as a city, new Jerusalem. When heaven and earth come together again, or like as Antti Wright says, that when they marry again, when they, when they fully come together again, heaven comes down to earth as a city, as a new city. And so there's this redemption over the city. And in the meantime, Jesus sends his disciples out to the cities to um, speak about the, um, God's love for the city. Anyway, Tim Keller kind of summarizes it like this. The city is an intrinsically positive social form with a checkered past, which is checkered means in this sense like it's some good and there's some bad. It's, it's, it's a little bit of both end. So it's a checkered past, but a beautiful future. As redemptive history progresses, we see that God's people begin as wanderers and nomads outside of cities, and then as city rebels in Babel, and then God directs them to be city builders and rebuilders, that's Jerusalem, and city loving exiles, that's again in Babylon. In the New Testament times, the people of God become city missionaries, and finally, when God's future arrives in the form of a city, his people can finally be fully at home. The fallen nature of the city, the warping of its potential due to the power of sin, is finally overcome and resolved. The cultural mandate is complete. The capacities of city life are freed in the end to serve God. All of God's people serve him in his holy city. So, we are called to love the city that we live in with God's love, seeing its beauty and its potential and reaching it with the good news of the kingdom. The second attitude is that Christians should become a dynamic counterculture where they live. So last week, uh, Charles was speaking a really beautiful message, really along the lines of, of what we're doing in this sermon series about how to be ambassadors of the kingdom and what that means, and already and not yet, and um, yeah, how, how we really send out and to work for restoration. And um, he also quoted uh, Paul's important warning to Christians um, about how to live in this world. Um, I'm not going to read from the message, but from the ESV. It says in Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, uh, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Loving the city, serving the city, blessing the city. We are all called to do those, but it doesn't mean that we should become like the city. And we see this in the life of Daniel as well. As soon as he got into Babylon, they were trying to change him. They were, trying to, they were changing his name, giving him a new identity. They were trying to brainwash him with their literature to um, let him think in their ways. And then they tried to persuade him to abandon the Jewish food laws uh, and eat their meat and drink their wine and kind of live their lifestyle. And Daniel chooses to learn. So he, he does read the literature, but he decides to learn from, you know, where am I now and how can I serve them best? But it's, it's not changing who he is. Um, 
he he stays who he, who he is. He he also knows that his name is actually Daniel. Um, uh, what was his name? The, I think they changed his name to like Belteshazzar or something, which is after one of their idols. Um, and then he refuses to. Uh, so he immediately limits himself in how he connects to their lifestyle. So he refuses to eat their meat and to drink their wine, really to stay true to his Jewishness, um, but also to kind of break off that connection. Like, I'm not going to become like you are. I'm going to stay who I am. So he's okay with being informed about his new city, but it's not okay to be conformed to their ways. Paul talks about how we are to be in this world in terms of formation. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed into the image of Jesus. This means that we need to be very careful, uh, careful with and aware of the formational power of the city. See, a city can only be transformed if God's people living in the city live radically different and don't conform, but themselves are transformed. Keller says it like this. Christians are called to be an alternate, uh, an alternate city within every earthly city. An altern- alternate um, human culture within every human culture. To show how sex, money and power can be used in non-destructive ways. And to show how classes and races and uh, that cannot get along outside of Christ can get along in him. And to show how it is possible to cultivate by using the tools of art and education and government and business to bring hope to people rather than despair or cynicism. In other words, Christians are called to counter the culture that they live in, but not by standing at a distance and complaining and criticizing, but by transforming it from the inside out. Lastly, the third attitude. Christians should be a community radically committed to the good of their city as a whole. We're called to love the city. We're called to be different, a a different community within the city. And lastly, we're called to change the city, to transform the city. The future city of God, New Jerusalem, is a city where we see a flourishing and completely healed humanity. The best of God's creation is combined with the best of human creativity and work. It's this powerful image of a a fulfillment of God's original mandate. Like go and take care of the garden and expand it and fill the whole earth with the beauty of the Garden of Eden. It's a fulfillment of that mandate. With that beautiful picture in mind... We are now called not to build that kingdom. We're not called to build New Jerusalem, but to, um, because it's something that only he can accomplish, but to build for the kingdom, kind of build towards that, to, to now work and, and be and build with that future in picture in mind, because we know that this is where God is moving history. And a haunting question to every church should be, if we would suddenly cease to exist... Would the city miss us? Would anyone notice and would anyone care? Are we, as Vinger Groningen, making a gospel impact in the city?
for many people coming into the city, it is a place of consumption. You know, you go to the city to get something, to get your degree or to uh, get uh, discovered in some way or get recognized in some way or whatever. As a church community, we should look at the city not as a place where we can get something, but where we can give something. Keller says this, Christians should seek to live in the city, not to use the city, but to, uh, to build great churches, but to use the resources of the church to see a great and flourishing city. So, practically, what does it mean to bless the city of Groningen? What does it mean for us to be a blessing to the city? I think that um, translates into three very simple things, practical things. First, we need to pray for the city. Um, and so in the coming weeks, we'll, in the newsletter, we'll be sending uh, just every week a short article on how you can pray for the city. What is something you can pray for? Uh, what is something you can take into your, into your prayers this, uh, this month as we, that, we, that we're praying for the flourishing of the city of Groningen? And secondly, we serve the city. So we're sending out teams to do projects on, on Saturdays. It's great, and we're looking forward to hear back from more of those projects and also what, that, what that means, what, that, what it means to be serving others in that way. And then lastly, reaching the city. We're called to pray for them, pray for the city, serve the city, and reach the city. We've got a mission here. We've got a message here, a message of, of good news, good news of the kingdom. And so in the last Sunday of the series, we're going to be talking about how we can be witnesses. And so let's think ahead about how in the Christmas season, we can reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen.